Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. The book of James, it's full of rebukes and corrections. It's got straightforward instruction, and he does not pull any punches. He gets right to the point, right? And, and today is no different. So as we jump into this, and we look at these passages, they're, they're fairly straightforward, but they often get misapplied or worse, glossed over. And the reason is, is because as people will read through these, there's often this kind of thought, is like, well, who is this talking to? And, and they'll start saying, oh, this is not talking to people in the church, this is talking about people who are outside of the church. And I think that that's kind of absurd. And, and it's ridiculous. So as we look at these, and, and there's going to be that temptation to say, oh, this isn't me, I think we need to just pray that the Spirit would show us how we relate to this and to be asking him to be changing us as we listen to these passages. And you guys are thinking, like, what are we, what are we reading today? So we'll see in a second after we pray. Let's pray real quick. Father, oh, man, we need you. Lord, we are flailing about without you. And Lord, our, our, our lives are on the verge of collapse as soon as we turn away from you. And Lord, we love you and we, we are so filled with joy that you have opened our eyes and that you've given us your spirit. And Lord, as, as we seek you, Lord, I just pray that the spirit would indwell us. Lord, that right now, Lord, that you would give us humble hearts Lord, that you would prepare our hearts, our minds, Lord, our, our view of the world and our view of you and, and ourselves, Lord, and that you would just give us clarity and that you would give us humbleness, but Lord, mostly that you would give us peace. Lord, that as we look at these passages, as James talks about arrogance and, and wealth and uh, the sins that come along and, and injustice and, and all of these things that are wound up in this, Lord, I just pray that you would remind us of our position in you and that that would be what we hold to. Lord, that we would have conviction from your spirit, Lord, but that we would feel no condemnation. Lord, that, that as we strive to become more like your son, that we would have joy in that, that we would be drawn closer to you, not that, that your instruction would send us further away because you are the one doing the work. So, Lord, we just lift up this time, Lord. I pray for, for my words, Lord, that they would be encouraging, Lord, that they would uh, draw people closer to you, Lord, that it would draw me closer to you, Lord. I pray for your spirit, Lord. I pray that you would just uh, bless this time and that you would be glorified through it. So we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in James chapter 4. Uh, we're starting in verse 13, and we're going to read through Chapter 5, verse 6. So starting in verse 13, it says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live to do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. 
all such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of God. So these two passages are pretty heavy. There's a couple of things that we just want to kind of talk through from an interpretation standpoint or, or kind of a housekeeping standpoint. So we would say that they're linked, right, because of this introductory phrase, the come now, right? So they, they both have this kind of come now, so we feel like, okay, there's, there's some sort of link to them. They both deal with the pursuit of possessions or wealth, right? And then both passages have a rebuke in them. So there's, there's a lot that kind of links them together, uh, but there are some things that are uh, different about them, right? So the rebuke of the landowner, who's the picture of the rich person in chapter 5, is much stronger than the rebuke of the merchant, who's kind of thinking about going out and, and trading and making a profit in chapter 4. This is where Many people who read, or, and even commentators who commentate on this section, or make comments on this section, they'll, they'll talk about that, and they'll talk about this landowner and say, well, this is not a person who's saved, so James can't be talking to people in the church. I, I feel like this is just a distraction, right? Like, it's just, it's a moot point, because who is this letter to, and how do we know it? It's to the, the Jews, the 12 churches in the dispersion. And we know that because it's the first thing that James says. So clearly, this passage is for the church. Okay? So are you all rich landowners that are out there abusing the people mowing your fields? I mean, most of us don't even own a field, right? So there are things in it that aren't related to us. But the reason that I think this becomes such a hot topic, it's like in every commentary, like who is this to? And, and there, it's because we want to distance ourselves, right? If we have nothing in common with these people, then we don't have to hear the warnings that they're given. So as we look at this passage and, and we kind of go through that, we just need to be confident that the word of God is here. This is for us. The Holy Spirit is going to reveal things in our hearts. And we need to take heed of that. And it's not going to be comfortable, right? I mean, whenever we hear things like this, it can be uncomfortable. At the root of what James is talking about in this section, in, in these two passages, is arrogance, and we see that in verse 16. It says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So we, we want to clarify that the arrogance is the issue here because we see elsewhere in Scripture even a, a call to boast, right? What are we called to boast in? Jesus, right? We're called to boast in Christ, called to boast on the cross. We see that in Galatians uh, 6.14 is a really good example of it. Paul says, 
But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So the arrogance is the thing that James is, is really kind of honing in on that's the issue, especially in that, that first section with the merchant. And to be arrogant or to have arrogance is to have or reveal an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities. Right? So arrogance is thinking more of yourself than you should. Okay? So who are people that we would immediately think of as arrogant? Right? So the first things I thought of was an athlete who's trash-talking because their abilities, they think their abilities are better than the next person's. Right? The second thing I thought of was a celebrity who wants to lecture and correct everybody and their moral behavior during their awards acceptance speech. Right? Because they think that their views are more important than yours, more informed than yours. Just about everyone on Twitter, right? Every single person on Twitter is arrogant. They all think, my opinion needs to be heard by the world. It's really important, right? So these kind of things, we would, we would agree, this is arrogant behavior. But James is connecting arrogance to something that doesn't seem arrogant on the surface, right? I mean, we're kind of like, well, where is the arrogance? He says, it's in verse 13. Verse 13, it says, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Like, what, where is the arrogance in that? Well, this really wouldn't be any different than us saying, I mean, you know, similar statements that, that we could make. Maybe it's just something lost in translation. But this would be like us saying, Next year, I'm going to go enroll in such and such a school and become a doctor, or a mechanic, or an electrician, and afterward, I'm going to get a job to support myself, right? Nothing arrogant that we would see in that statement. Or it might be something, you know, different phase of life. Starting this year, I will invest in my retirement fund, such and such an amount, and after X amount of years, I will be able to retire, right? I mean, we wouldn't say, oh, what an arrogant statement that man just made. So, James is saying that there's arrogance to these statements, and we have to kind of figure out why, right? What is at the heart of this arrogance that James is seeing? He's saying that these statements have an exaggerated sense of our own importance and ability. You see, when we're measuring arrogance in our lives, we're measuring our arrogance by looking around at those among us, kind of looking at our abilities our importance, and judging where our value is. And as long as we kind of stay in our lane culturally in the social norms, then we're not being arrogant. But in this passage, James is saying that the root of arrogance has to do with our position before God, not before man. Does that make sense? Right? So, if I compare to Lee, you're always in front. You're always my example. I don't know why. If I compare myself to Lee, you know, I'd be like, okay, well, Lee's maybe a little more important than I am. His abilities are a little bit more in these areas. And, you know, but I'm, I, my abilities are a little bit more over here. And you know, we can communicate, and neither of us can be arrogant to one another. But when God comes into the picture, it changes our view of what arrogance is. And the thing that James talks about in chapter 4 with the merchant is that the merchant is looking at his own abilities to plan and provide. 
And he did not acknowledge God's providence and sovereignty over all things. He was not acknowledging his own ignorance and lack of control in his life. It was the confidence that he had in the future that was the root of his arrogance. And James points this out by saying that his life is a mist, right? It's like a morning fog that comes in, it's here for a moment, and it disappears. Our life, his life, is short, fragile, and very unstable, right? We can be in a great mood one day, and by the end of the day, everything could be turned upside down. Amen? Right? So we don't have this control. We can't make these plans in this great confidence. And when we do, James is saying that we are boasting, right? And that we are boasting in our arrogance. This is weird for us to to grab. I mean, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking that, man, James kind of feels like self-confidence is arrogance. And that's like not a thought that jives well with our culture, right? I mean, how many times are you told to be self-confident and to be comfortable with yourself and to believe in yourself, right? And James is saying, before God, that's arrogance, right? So, I mean, like, this is, this is hard. Like, I still, like, I had to, you know, I, was, I was talking to my brother and Eric and Chad, and I was like, is this, is this, right? Like, am, am I reading this right? Like, am I coming to the right conclusions? I, even as I'm prepping this, as I'm reading and I'm seeing these things, there's just this cultural idea inside of me that values myself so much, right? That it's like, it's hard to come to grips with this thought. Like, there's all these excuses that I want to make. It's like, well, well, well it's not, it doesn't really mean that. James goes so far as to say that when we make these statements that we are boasting in arrogance and that type of boasting is evil. I mean, those are like strong words, right? Why is it evil? Well, I mean, the undeniable truth is that our life is fragile, right? Any one of us at any moment in the middle of the service, our body could fail. We could have a heart attack. We could have a seizure. Our lungs could collapse. Anybody in the medical profession could probably list 12 other things that could happen to us at any moment by surprise and change the entire direction of our entire life and of those around us, right? It doesn't even have to happen to us. If we live in this state of insecurity, this state of fragility, it would be natural for us to look for that insecurity to be reinforced, right? So if, if we come to grips, and we all know this, it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter how much self-confidence or success we have, we know it's the elephant in the room. This could all end at any moment. And when we think about that, what we want to do is find security, right? So if we want to pursue that security, the world tells us our own flesh would like to think, and even demonic spiritual forces in the world They team up to try to convince us that we have the power in our own being, the capability to give us the security that we need. And that lie isn't just a false truth, right? It's not just a false thing to be given to us. It's also rebellion against God, right? It'd be like if I created a banquet, right, and I laid all the food out on the table, and then you came in 
and you made your plate, and you put all the food on your plate, and you praised yourself for all of the preparation that you did, and you didn't even acknowledge that I was in the room. Right? I mean, and, and I'm just a guy. I, you know, that's a slight offense. But if it's God, and it's not a banquet we're talking about, it's the entire world, the entire universe, the insult is evil. Right? So, so as, as this man, this merchant, does that, James reveals that this is sin. I mean, this type of sin is, it's like the, the meat and potatoes sin. We've moved past milk, and, and we're getting into more of the, the intricacies of the deceitfulness of our hearts, right? We know Jesus is there. We're thankful that he's changing us, and he just continues to reveal these subtleties that continue to stray us off course. And he's like, okay, you know, we've got this. Like, I'm going to chip away at this a little bit. I'm going to chip away at this a little bit. And, and James talks about how that, that sin works, right? If we go back to chapter 1 and we look at verse 14, James talks about how this sin starts really small and then it grows into this death plague, right? So we see in verse 14 it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I mean, you and I, every human being who has ever lived, desires comfort and security. So when we're presented with this lie that's given to us by the world and, and the world system and all of the spiritual forces that are of the world, our own flesh, all of these things kind of reinforce this lie that our desire for this security can be met on our own terms, that sin takes root in our desire, and then it's, it's given birth. Our approach to this should be to battle it, but we have to be able to identify it in order to fight against it. And, and that's kind of what today is. It's, it's that warning of how it's happening. So it kind of plays out, according to James chapter 1, uh, the desire for security is tempted, the temptation of security is to be found in ourself, pride of our flesh gives in to that desire, and it's born, which could look something like what's happening with the merchant, where he's talking about making plans in his own desire. And it could look like those statements that we you know, might say with our retirement or schooling or you know, just making these plans. But it doesn't stop there necessarily. Right? As, as we look at this merchant, and James ends that, you know, now that you know that this is right, if you don't do it, it's sin. If we continue, that could look something like the landowner in chapter 5. Right? So we see these kind of disconnects. And, and the further along we get into this, the less likely we are to relate. Right? We might look at the, the merchant and say, oh yeah, I might make comments like that. But we look at the landowner and we say, like, wow, that is definitely not me. Right? But I believe that this is the extension of that same sin, right? The rich landowner is an example given by James in chapter 5. He's not a real person, but he's just an example of the situation that many real people have lived out. If we look at the, the section there, we can see that he has fine foods, a fine house, right? These are the, the riches that could rot, right? Food and wood and lumber, you know, things like that. Um, he's got fine garments, He's got silver and gold. 
I don't think that it would be a stretch to think that someone in this situation would feel justified in the actions that they took to acquire these comforts. Right? There's not many people who go out and purposely live against their conscience. What, what happens is, is that their conscience and their ideas are justified in their mind by the results or by their beliefs. He probably felt that he was important and his abilities are what brought him to this place of wealth. Right? People with wealth generally feel, right or wrong, that they were the driving force behind their success. Right? Even people who are not wealthy usually feel like if there's success, their temptation is to say, that was my success. Right? That's in all of us. And James gives examples here of the types of thing that a person who is given over to their arrogance and committed to finding security in their own abilities may do in order to have success, right? He paid his workers fraudulently. Um, he condemned people, right? So that could be like lawsuits. That could be disagreements and arguments that he condemned them. He even murdered the righteous, right? So we see these stages that as the sin develops and it grows, what it leads to. And he did all of this in order to live in luxury and self-indulgence. The sin has fully developed into death at this point with, with his actions. And in this passage, we see that death being lived out even for the landowner in the end, right? We see the ultimate results of his sin before the Lord. And before we, you know, kind of completely write the landowner off, um, it would be a good exercise to look at a couple of things that we might have in common, right? Because the temptation in a passage like this is to associate, associate ourselves with the poor, associate ourselves with the victim. But we have ibuprofen. We have antibiotics, right? We all can eat any cuisine we want from just about anywhere in the world within 30 minutes, right? We have a personal chef that we can pay to make our food. We have constant and consistent access to entertainment, to clean water, electricity, air conditioning, heating, and a very important statistic, most of us have one, more than one room in the home that we live in, right? So by world standards right now, just if those statements apply to you, you are wealthy, right? We are not poor. The, the problem is, is that we live in a nation of wealth, right? So if we live in a nation of wealth and we are not the wealthiest, we don't associate ourselves as wealthy. And the danger of this, guys, is it's not that wealth is evil. The, the danger of us not associating correctly is that we don't hear the warning that's given. Right? Because that's really the, the whole point of this. We probably even have something in common with, with this man in that we believe in our abilities, right? Uh, we feel like our abilities have gotten us what we have and that we deserve what we have, right? Some of us might even feel like we deserve more, right? We might be agonizing and frustrated that we didn't get the pay raise or that we don't have a better job or somebody else got the promotion, right? We might feel like what I really need is this thing and I want to be able to afford it, 
right? So we may even feel not that we deserve it, but that we need more wealth. But what do we need more for? Like, what is it going to get us in the, in the long run? I mean, what is it that this missing wealth is going to give us that we don't have in Christ? Because wealth does provide a great degree of comfort. You know, we could get better stuff, better health care. We could pay off debts, right? We could go on nicer vacations. We could get a nicer car. Maybe we could get a car, right? We might not even have a car. Wealth could give us a degree of security, but that security is still only temporary, right? So we're not negating the fact that we need resources to live here on earth, but James is giving us a warning that our resources could be an issue, right? James opens his letter in uh, chapter 1 in verse 9. He talks about the temporariness of, of wealth, right? He, he starts in verse 9, he says, "'Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation "'and the rich in his humiliation, "'because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. "'For the sun rises with its scorching heat "'and withers the grass.'" Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And that's what happened to the rich landowner in chapter 5, right? All of his riches faded away. His food and shelter rotted. His clothing was eaten by moths. His silver and gold corroded. His wealth, which was the source of his comfort, was gone. But not only was it gone, this is a really interesting thing about the passage, it also acted as a receipt for his arrogance, Right? Like every bit of wealth that he had was a record of the injustices and the arrogance that he lived out. Have you thought about your stuff like that? Like my TV is a record of my purchases, right? If I buy the you know, 40-inch TV or the 72-inch TV, it's like on my record all the time. You know, if I buy the $10,000 car, the $30,000 car, the $80,000 car. Like, it's on my record all the time. I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just saying, have you thought about your stuff like that? Right? Because that's kind of what this passage talks about with this man, is that each time he acquired something and used it for his own self-indulgence and luxurious lifestyle, it was a record kept against him. Um, each time he justified the abuse of another so he could have more, the cries were a witness against him, right? His wealth brought about by his arrogant pursuit of comfort and security or, as it's called here, self-indulgence and luxury, right? Because those are just the, the living out of comfort and security, became a danger to him when he was taken in the midst of his pursuits. So, kind of look at these passages what do we take away from this, right? Because this is heavy, I know, like, these are things we don't like to think about. Is wealth evil? I mean, is that what these passages are saying? I mean, should we all become transients who live lives of poverty and suffering to prove our righteousness? Not at all, right? Wealth is not evil. Now, boasting in your own power to acquire it is evil. That's the statement that James is making. Wealth is dangerous, and we need to be on guard, and that is why James gives us the instruction in that passage in, in chapter 1 to boast in our humiliation, right? So that's the solution that's come up. If we're rich, we need to boast in our frailty and our weakness and our ignorance, right? We need to 
constantly be reminding ourselves not just to say, you know, if the Lord wills, I'm going to go out and do this, but to believe it and to live by it, right? Because otherwise, we make these plans. What happens when those plans don't work out? We get mad, right? Like we get disappointed, we get crushed, we get frustrated. And who do we blame it on? God, right? Like we didn't ask, we didn't say if he wills and then we, we get frustrated with him because our plans didn't work out. Like that's how we're living arrogance out. And that's what this passage is talking about. We need to hold our wealth with an open hand and a dependent heart, right? And, and we all have degrees of wealth. I want to do an exercise as we kind of wrap up. I want you to think about all of the possessions that you have. I want you to begin to tally, right? Starting with your closets, right? Think about your closets. Think about how many shirts you have, how many shoes you have, how many pairs of pants you have, your jackets, your shirts. Just think about all of the clothing. And now I want you to move on to electronics, right? Think about your TVs, your phones, your computers, the gadgets that you have, Okay, now think about in your home, start in your bedroom, and start going through the furniture that you have, right? The the individual pieces of furniture. And go through room by room in your house and think about all the furniture. Think about the pantry, the food that's in there, your refrigerator, all of that food. Okay, and those are are our possessions, right? We've got our cars and different things like that. Now, think about what you do for entertainment. Think about the funds that we're spending in entertainment, right? The funds that we're spending in fast food and on restaurants and vacations and think think about that. So keep the totality of all of these possessions, all of the wealth that God has given us. And I'm going to read a passage in Mark 10. And I want you to put yourself in the place of this man who kneels before Jesus. I mean, imagine that Jesus is standing here and he's getting ready to go somewhere and you walk up and you interrupt him just as this man did. Starting in verse 17 in in chapter 10, it says, and he was setting out on his journey, this is talking about Jesus, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I feel like we can read that passage and we can separate ourselves. You know, it's a good exercise to just think about how do we hold on to our wealth, right? I mean, this man was in a very different position, right? Jesus was before him and saying physically, follow me, come with me, let go of the life that you have right now and follow me right now. And Jesus is saying that same thing to us, but our following him is not walking right with him. So we're in different positions. And I don't want anybody to mistake today that we're saying you have to sell everything that you have, okay? Nobody needs to walk away with that in their mind. But we do need to take an account right? That's what this is about. 
This man wanted to be righteous more than he wanted to follow Jesus. And the danger of wealth and comfort is that we can feel like we're being righteous and not following Jesus at all. He understood the teachings of the Old Testament, right? He knew the things to say. It's thought that he was a ruler in the synagogue. He's often called the rich young ruler, and that his, his ruling was in the synagogue. Um, so he knew the religious things to say. But he thought that his actions were keeping him pure and his abilities were keeping him righteous and that he had earned eternal life. Jesus exposed what the man really loved and what he really worshipped by asking him to give it up, asking him to submit it to his authority. And we just need to do that. So the passage doesn't end there, though, and, and the rest of the passage is, is what I want to close on. It says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. We've talked a lot about ourselves in this, right? But what we really need to end on and what we really need to focus on is God. Because maybe we're sitting here and, and we're feeling uncomfortable, feeling like you're being asked to sell something or give more or sacrifice, and honestly, you're not. I, mean, I don't have a line where luxury and self-indulgence begin. There's not an automobile or a size of house or a cost of your vacation. There's not a pay scale that you suddenly become self-indulging and luxurious. It's not written in the Word. It's about your heart and what you're living for. The point of this passage, both the passage in Mark and the passage in James, it's not to identify the rich and condemn them, it's to warn them. So we need to be very honest with ourselves and hear the warning if it applies to us. We should approach our wealth like it's a loaded gun. And if we misuse it, we could kill ourselves or other people. Right? Like that's the, the severity of our wealth. That's how Jesus talks about it. And maybe you feel like you believe this, but your heart is fighting against you, that there's something in you that just doesn't want to submit to it. You need a new heart. And there's good news because at the end of that section in Mark, it says, for man, this is impossible, right? It is impossible for us to give ourselves a new heart. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death and was resurrected as proof that his payment on our behalf was accepted. In the second letter to Corinthians, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Chapter 8, verse 9. 
See, we live in spiritual poverty. We're covered in sin. We're enslaved to our desires, and we are helpless to change. The gospel is the truth that God loved you so much that while you were still a sinner, while we were in spiritual poverty, Jesus took that spiritual poverty on himself. He paid the debt that it had created through the sacrifice of the cross, and he gave us the riches of his glory, his spirit, his heart, so that we could be resurrected with him for eternity. Our wretched heart is replaced with his righteous heart. So if you're standing here and you're feeling like, I don't want to get rid of my stuff, just ask for a new heart. Because the beautiful thing is that all the comfort and security that we're seeking from the arrogant acquisition of wealth is truly found through a life that's transformed by that heart that Christ is giving you, right? I mean, think about it. The riches that are here on earth that rot and lose their appeal, there's no way to get around that. And when we have our own heart, we're blind to it. We just see this. But when Jesus gives us our new heart, we see that we don't want those, we want to find our security, and we do find our security instead in the resurrection and the feast of the Lamb, right? The eternity with Christ, the place that he has gone to prepare for us. The earthly material things no longer bring us joy. We no longer look at the clothing we wear that's going to be eaten by moths. Now, the sign of our status uh, the means of defining who we are are instead the righteousness of Christ, right? The grace of the Holy Spirit. Now our identity, our expression to the world is through the fruit of the Spirit that's changing who we are, not on the surface, but on the inside. The gold and silver that corrodes is no longer a receipt of our sin. It's now a means of meeting the needs of those that we are near and being a resource that God has given us in order to bring him glory and to be a witness of his mercies. The life that was like a vapor described in chapter 4 that gives us insecurity and improves the fragility and the uncertainty is now given purpose and longevity. And not just here on earth, but for an eternity when we receive glorified bodies free from the sickness and pain of a fallen world that's corrupted by sin. This is the trade that Jesus is making, right? All of the security and the comfort that we desire here is offered through the gospel, right? And as we see that, as we make this trade, we can look at that rich young ruler, and this is what Jesus was offering him, and he walked away disheartened and sorrowful. Why? Because wealth is dangerous, and it can blind us right? So, James reminds us and he calls us to action because your new heart will change who you are every day as you grow to be like Jesus. And that's what we want to end on, right? We want to take away. Wealth is dangerous. We want to do an assessment. We want to think about what we're doing in our life. But the thing that we really want to remember is that the new heart that Jesus has given us will change our desires and the way that we see those things. And that is great news. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, I just pray that, that no one would leave today. No one who's listening to this would leave and, and feel condemned. Because there's such great hope, Lord. 
The, the lie that would make us feel condemned, that somehow our possessions are going to give us joy. Lord, let us see them in the way that you see them, as tools and instruments to be your hands and your feet here on earth. And Lord, I pray that, that you would just be changing us or changing the way that we see things or that you'd be encouraging us. Lord, as, as we come up and take communion, I just pray that, that we would remember the extent that you went to to free us from this bondage. Lord, the extent that you went to, you became a physical man to take this sin on, that we might be freed from the impossible task of giving ourselves salvation or finding in ourselves comfort and security, that you did that for us. Lord, we are trading nothing. We bring nothing to the table. And you have brought riches and glory beyond physical, material wealth. So, Lord, I just pray that as, as we come up to the communion tables right now and, and as, as we partake in communion with one another, Lord, that you would just give us all peace. Lord, that you would correct our thinking and, and push us forward in encouragement. Lord, in power and your spirit to go and be a light, Lord. Don't allow the enemy, Lord, don't allow demonic and spiritual forces to feed us a lie that we are sacrificing anything that you are not going to return to us a hundredfold. So, Lord, I just pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord. I pray that, that we would grow in you, that we would be glorifying to you, or that you would be blessed. We love you and we praise your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covegracemenifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.